be found in the bulletin. If I can find it, that is. Our scriptures 19, Luke 19, 28 through 40. And I made a mistake. I want to add 41 through 44 where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. So I'm going to read that even though it may not be in your bulletin. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out, excuse me, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you still watch game shows. They're sort of the, uh, uh, you know, of a bygone era, so to speak. You know, I still remember Richard Dawson on Family Feud. To me, that is the pinnacle of game show. Richard Dawson on Family Feud. They've tried to resurrect it, but Family Feud has never been the same. Let's make a deal with Monty Hall. Uh, the Price is Right. Does, is Bob Barker still on The Price is Right, by the way? No? I don't think he could turn that wheel like one click uh, if he was. Well, there's one game show that perhaps you've never watched. It's called To Tell the Truth. Anyone remember that? Came out in 1956, Bud Collier. And in fact, they've had reiterations of it throughout the decades. In fact, they started it up again, a guy named Anthony Anderson on ABC. They even had it in 2001 on Animal Planet under the title, You Lie Like a Dog, which essentially was the same as to tell the truth. The way it works is you have four people who are, you know, on a, uh, you know, this panel, so to speak. They might be celebrities, uh, B-grade, of course. And things are told about them. And by hearing these various, uh, you know, statements about them and their life, at the end, you know, uh, the game show host says, will the real person please stand up? And the person stands up, one out of the four, and you try to, you know, you see if you were correct or wrong. Why do I talk about this uh, game show? 
I think that it's very, there are similarities to be had between that game show and the dozens of Jesuses that are offered in the religious and political landscape today, right? There are a variety of different Jesuses that are in the public eye, that are, people are pushing, so to speak. There's Jesus Christ, the superstar. If you remember that God spell, the disillusioned popular figure who was uh, extremely flawed and really didn't mean to be a hero anyways. There's Jesus the socialist, the Robin Hood who steals from the rich and gives to the poor. There's Jesus the capitalist who blesses those who help themselves. There's Jesus the revolutionary, the Che Guevara, right? The urban guerrilla overthrowing oppressive government. And there's Jesus, the political savior. It's very interesting how everybody is a Christian come election time, right? Jesus is on our side. And he will help us to be with Jesus is to be with us. Jesus is a political savior. Well, it's very important for us to figure out who the real Jesus is when the real Jesus stands up. Because Jesus is the face of God, right? He is the one through which we can see who God the Father is like. No one has seen God the Father except God the Son and those to whom Jesus reveals Him. And so to understand and to see Christ aright is to see God aright. As we look at this passage, I want to suggest to you that the crowd is looking at a Jesus that is not the true Jesus. They're looking more at the political savior, the revolutionary fighter, the general who would serve them. But God has provided a king who walks into Jerusalem that day who has come to save them. And so we must choose our king and we must choose the right one. Either the political savior or the savior of the world. Because Christ has come to give us victory not by conquering the political landscape but by sacrificing himself and giving us life by dying. A much greater victory. So we must embrace the victory first of all that we need not simply the victory that we want. Well these are fighting words to some so I guess I better talk about them. We're going to look at three particular things. Number one we're going to look at the king that we crave the powerful king. But we're going to look at number two, the king who Jesus is, the king who comes. And finally, we're going to look at the king that we must choose. The king we crave, the king who comes, and the king that we must ultimately choose. Well, let's begin with the king that we crave. As we read this passage, we see that the excitement is building. As Jesus comes closer and closer to Jerusalem, it's a politically charged, religiously charged environment. It's the Passover time. The time where Israelites come together, descend on Jerusalem to remember the liberation that God gave, freeing the Israelites from the power of Egypt, freeing them from tyranny and from slavery. And as Jesus is entering into Bethany, the crowds have already seen him done a great miracle, right? Remember Lazarus where Jesus has called him from the dead? They've seen his power. They see him come and the word spreads like wildfire. Jesus gives instructions to his disciples. 
sending two of them to go to the village in front of you to find a colt which no one has ever sat upon and to bring it. And in fact, he even prophetically says, if someone asks you, why are you taking this? You simply say to them, the Lord has need of it. How did the Lord know that it would be there? Because he's God. And God gives the son everything he needs. How does Jesus sit and ride on a colt that no one has ever sat? I don't know if you're a farmer or not, but that doesn't calculate, does it? Obstinate, angry creatures who don't want to be handled. And yet this colt lowers its head as Jesus sits upon it, meekly and mildly, bearing the Savior of the world. And so Jesus rides into the cold and rides into the city and as people see the him, they recognize this picture that's been given in the book of Zechariah, one of the messianic prophecies. Zechariah 9.9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. They see the sign and they respond. They put cloaks on the donkey and they begin to put cloaks in front of the road as the donkey goes. It says here that the disciples are doing this. But as we read all of the uh, different gospels, this story is actually in all four of the gospels. We see that it's the multitude. It seems that everyone has become a disciple of Jesus in this time, right? Why are they throwing their cloaks down? It's the same reason we lay out the red carpet when the celebrity comes, right? It's a sign of respect and honor. The Messiah comes and that's what they would do when a king came. They would fix the road in front of him so that he wouldn't pass by. They lowered the cloaks. And indeed, it's not said in Luke, but they cut palm branches and they lay them and they begin to wave them, saying, Hosanna in the highest, right? Luke 19.38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The palm branches were a symbol of victory. If an attorney won an important case, he would hang palm branches outside of his door. If an athlete won a great uh, contest, they would award him the palm branches. We've seen, you know, uh, that they wear around. And when a conquering king would come into town, he would wear a, a toga that had palm branches on it. A symbol of victory. Our king has come. Victorious. They're claiming he's the king. Now this is outright sedition by the way. Okay, there was only one king and that was Caesar. Right? And the town of Jerusalem and the province was governed by Pontius Pilate. To, to lay down the palms, to lay down the cloaks, to call someone else a king was outright sedition. Why would they take such a reckless action? Because they believed that on that day there was going to be a political change of power. That Jesus was going to speak the word and all of the people, all of the Romans were going to be killed. They were going to be cast out with just a word and a new reign was going to occur. Their excitement and enjoyment was not long lived, unfortunately. See, for one thing, Jesus comes on a donkey. If a king came to conquer, he would come on a stallion, a white stallion, a charger, coming to conquer. 
But if a king came in peace, he would ride a donkey. Christ comes not on a stallion, but on a donkey. And then Jesus does this bizarre action as he sees the city and the crowds are cheering wildly for him. He begins to weep. If you ever you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Indeed, this whole city will be destroyed. I wonder what the response of the crowd was as they see Jesus weeping. Is it embarrassment? Is it incredulity? I almost see the crowds cheering, diminishing until you could hear a pin drop. Jesus actually proceeds from there to go into the temple and to drive out the money changers. He's in the wrong building, right? He should be in the praetorium, driving out Pontius Pilate. And here he is in the temple, castigating the Jewish and religious leaders. Their expectations were destroyed. Their disappointment was manifest. And the crowd ultimately would turn on him. In just a week, the crowd laying palm branches would be shouting, crucify him. They expected a political savior to save them from Rome and he did not meet their expectations. I can't help but draw some connections between the environment in which they find them and the environment in which we find ourselves. I wonder if some ways, in some ways, we have perhaps transferred our expectations to a new Messiah. A political Messiah who will save us. Our political messiahs who claim salvation for us are quite flawed this election, aren't they? It's a little harder than in the past that we've been able to do. Or perhaps we're looking at Jesus. We're worried and marginalized. We fear the future for us as Christians. We're worried about their future. We're worried about our position. And we come today looking for Jesus to fix the world. Jesus, we will worship you, of course. But we really need you to do this. Perhaps it's possible that we will fall prey to the same critical problem that they have fallen prey to. Externalizing the problem. The world is a mess, to be sure. The candidates are flawed, sinful, perhaps even immoral people. What a surprise. But the problem is out there. Jesus has come more than to fix our external circumstances. More to give us than just to give us a Shangri-La in which we can relax and hang our heads and kick our feet up. Jesus comes to set the world aright. And a deeper, deeper cleansing must occur. And it starts not just with them. It starts with me. What this world needs, some people would say, perhaps you've seen the bulletin board, is a return to the Ten Commandments. The problem is, without a changed heart, I could care less about God. I could care less about His ways. I need more than simply a brave general. I need a Savior who can fix me. Remember the story of 
the band that played on. Remember those guys? Anyone watch the movie, The Titanic? An unbelievable movie, you know, the boat is going down. And lo and behold, the music begins. It's a true story, actually. There were eight musicians on the Titanic, a three-piece ensemble and a five-piece ensemble. And they were boarded. Uh, They weren't uh, uh, employees of the Titanic. There was a company that would uh, get these people and put them in. And so they were responsible for tea time and after-dinner concerts, Sunday services. There was a violin and a a cello and a piano trio at the various restaurants. Well, after the Titanic hit an iceberg and began to sink, these men and women decided to start playing music to help keep the passengers calm as they boarded the lifeboats. Many of the survivors said that that band of eight continued to play until the very end when they could play no longer. None of them survived. They all went down with the ship. One second-class passenger said, many brave things were done that night, but none were more brave than those done by the men playing minute by minute after as the ship settled quietly lower and lower in the sea. The music they played served alike as their own immortal requiem and their right to be recalled on the scrolls of undying fame. They gave their lives that there might be some peace on that night. But the simple fact, my friends, is the Titanic went down. We must honor the bravery of men and those who live virtuously. But I need more than bravery. I need more than a simple external fix to the cracked veneer of the world. I need someone that can save this earth and save me from myself. For if I'm honest, as I look at this world in my heart, I realize that if there is justice, there must be judgment. God, save me. The people here wanted Jesus to do something for them. But Jesus came to do something to them. If Jesus fixes the political scales of power, there will not be peace and harmony. Right? If we just get our people in, everything's going to be fixed. That is not to say that we should not participate in that. And I'm going to talk about that in our class. What is our role? For we do live in this world. We must not be cynical and jaded. God works in the affairs of men. But that is not going to solve the problem. Brave men alone will not solve the problem. It is only Jesus that can fix the heart. And so you and I must recognize our need that Jesus came to save us from ourselves. He came to save our lives. So change your expectations. Don't settle for a small king. Don't assign messiahship to someone who cannot save. This brings me to my second point, the king that we need. Jesus comes, but not to conquer. He comes to sacrifice. It is not lost that he comes during the time of Passover. See, the Passover was not only 
to remember what God did in bringing them out of captivity and slavery, but the mechanism by which he provided to do so. God said to the Israelites, it's not because you're a more virtuous nation or a greater or stronger nation that I've saved you, but rather I've set my affection on you. I've chosen you to deliver you. But if there's any justice, if I am just and right, there must be a sacrifice, an expiation for your sins that I might look upon you. And so I will institute a, a ceremony by which I will look over your sin. I will pass over it as I instructed you to put the blood over the door in Egypt. So you will sacrifice the lamb which will serve as the blood which will cover you. Israel and I will pass over not remember your sins and so they would look throughout the entire year to try to find the most spotless the most pure the most innocent lamb that they could find the one who did not deserve judgment so to speak but in the end it was never enough centuries of centuries every year the lamb had to be sacrificed again right because it's not enough. The one who sins must die. And so whether they or we recognize it or not, there is a blood price on our days, on our, all of our heads. That just as man is destined to die once and after that, to face judgment. Jesus tells the parable, if you remember, of the landowner who uh, assigns uh, to... Uh, some of his servants to work the land, to yield produce, to provide for him. And as the king uh, goes and re uh, requests the uh, produce, the people who he's, uh, he has assigned the field to, they beat the servants of the king. So the king sends more servants. And they actually beat them worse. Finally, the king says, I will send my son. Surely they will respect him. And when they saw him, they said, here is the heir. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And what do you think the king will do when he comes to those who are in his vineyard? He will kill them and give the land to a people who will produce its fruits. Do you think that we can escape we are the criminals and the convicts. We are the prisoners. It was Thomas Jefferson of all people who said, indeed I tremble when I reflect that God is just and his justice will not sleep forever. But thank goodness the king that day comes not on a stallion. Not to destroy humanity, but he comes in peace on a donkey. Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter said, may these things never happen to you. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. You see, for a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for an unrighteous person, though for a good person, someone might die. But Christ demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? See, Jesus did the one thing that no one else could ever do. Our founding fathers actually understood this. That absolute power corrupts absolutely. There is a desire in us to be first. A hunger for power. We may say, oh, that's not me. The scriptures say that every single one of us has led a rebellion against God to depose him and take his place. See, they tried to make Jesus king, didn't they? But Jesus would have none of it. Satan, from the beginning of time, has said, if you simply follow me, I will give you glory and worship. All this will be yours, Jesus, if you would bow down and worship me. And so our craving and desire for power twists each one of us all, making us a grotesque interpretation of the image of God. But it was Jesus, even on this day, as the crowd screamed, the one who comes to save us, who could with a word summon his Father and call down 12 legions of angels and wipe Jerusalem off the face of the earth who did no such thing. For he comes to die. He comes to save. I think of one of the greatest acts of sacrifice for our country, which was not on the battlefield. It was of our heroic leader, George Washington. If ever there was anyone who could be king of this country, it would have been then and there. Washington had fought bravely Multiple horses shot out from under him, stood in the gap, and a problem was brewing. See, after the war, the, uh, the coffers of the country were so bankrupt that they could not pay the officers. And the officers were grumbling. They were upset. They'd given all of this, their lives and their hearts, and they felt that Congress was dealing with them capriciously. And so the message came through back channels. Either find the money to pay the officers immediately or they would walk away from their posts and leave Congress to defend itself against the British. Or, more likely, they would seize control of the government. They pan planned to put their favored leader, George Washington, at the head of the military dictatorship because as they saw it, he deserved to lead the country. Who better to be the first leader than the man who had almost single-handedly brought them from tyrann tyrannical subjugation to freedom. By the way, on the face of it, there was nothing at all especially remarkable about this. This is the way things went, so to speak. But when Washington caught wind of it, he was shocked and furious. His own sense of virtue was such that for him this proposal was offensive. It violated everything he stood for and believed in. And so he gathered the officers together. And after rebuking them for their thoughts, he said these words. 
while I pledge myself in the most unequivocal manner to exert whatever ability I am possessed of in your favor. Let me entreat you gentlemen on your part not to take any measures which viewed in the calm light of reason will lessen the dignity and sully the glory of which you have hitherto maintained. Let me conjure you in the name of our common country as you value your own sacred honor, as you respect the rights of humanity and as you regard the military and national character of America to express your utmost horror and detestation of the man who wishes under any special pretense to overthrow the liberties of our country, specious pretenses, to overcome the liberties of our country and who wickedly attempts to open the floodgates of civil discord and deluge our rising empire in blood. By thus determining and acting, you will give one more distinguished proof of unexampled patriotism and patient virtue rising superior to the pressure of the most complicated sufferings. And you will, by the dignity of your conduct, afford occasion for posterity to say, when speaking of the glorious example you have exhibited to mankind, had this day been wanting, the world had never seen the last stage of perfection to which human nature is capable of attaining. When King George III of England heard that Washington was actually going to resign, he said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. What Washington was saying and looking upon is most perfectly manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, who as the undisputed king and ruler of the earth laid down his life so that we might live chose humility instead of honor and shame instead of glory. This is the true king, the king that the world needs. I am a citizen of my country and I love it, but I must acknowledge that I am a citizen of a deeper body, humanity itself. I, like everyone else, would settle for power and glory if given the chance. But what I and what the world really wants, I shouldn't say that, what I want is righteousness and holiness. Is not a true shalom among men greater than an external uneasy peace? Jesus gave up power and glory that we might have glory in him. He is the hope of the world. We are victorious in Christ because of him. And so we must walk in his ways. We must choose this king, the one who brought love into our hearts. We must love others, the one who brought virtue into my soul. We must exercise it in these days. Christ never disdains worship, by the way. As the disciples, as everyone says, uh, the, excuse me, the Pharisees, tell your disciples not to say these things. Indeed, if they were quiet, the whole world, the stones themselves would cry out. All of creation responds to the king. Shall we not also by walking in his path to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves? Who is the true king? The answer is easy. 
the one who loves his people. Jesus did not come for adoration and worship. He came to rescue us. Will you follow in his path? Will you recognize and worship the crucified king who comes to save us rather than the imposter king who simply comes to serve us? You must follow a king just as they must. We have our teams. We have our groups. But there is one above all of them. We have our God. So live for him. Love him. Worship him. Proclaim him. Walk in his path. For if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Jesus played the song of salvation and the Titanic was resurrected. He is the hope of our world. Let us follow him to victory no matter what the cost. Let's pray. If we're honest, Jesus, all too often we desire you to solve the problems out in front of us, neglecting that the deepest ills in our lives are those that are inside of us. Jesus, I praise you that you gave us who believe in you a heart of flesh, replacing the heart of stone. You gave us love. You made us acceptable. You healed us. Lord, you say that those that you have washed don't need a bath anymore. Lord, help us to walk in your path, lifting and lauding the true King as we seek to walk in your ways in this complicated place we call planet Earth. Lord, you say that if we follow you, you will show us the path. So we need no program. We simply need you and your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.